rumors of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge, there's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. That's right. Look under the bed. Check the closet. Look behind the curtains. <laughs> and you'll find me and Tim. Hey. Wow, that's a scary thought. Welcome to the Outer Edge. Here we are again. It's uh, <laughs> the 23rd where I am, 24th where Tim is. And uh, we're just here to entertain, cajole, and enrage you, as usual. Enrage, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. <laughs> and, uh, hey, that's what we're good for. And um, <laughs> it's just been an interesting week, hasn't it, Tim? Mm-hmm. It has been an interesting week. Um, I guess there's been more uh, strangeness seen on uh, the Martian surface. Yes. It seems like every, seems like every week... Something yeah. new and interesting is found. Well, the red uh, the red planet is uh, unveiling its secrets, and here's the question: If somebody did not want us to see that stuff, will we will we see it? In other words, if if the agency taking the pictures yeah, really wanted right. to cover up what was going on up there, would some of those pictures ever make it to to the I, public? Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah, I, 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 I really doubt. It's it. sort of like an e- we're, we're easing into telling you we're going to let you figure out for yourselves that there was a civilization on Mars that was destroyed. It seems like it. Now you know. Now the the, the new pictures. Um, you know, it's like it's like we were talking about before the show. I mean, they uh, uh, they were the description is like you know two two alien figures. Uh, um, but uh, it, 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 they look more almost like, like you were saying, it was like, like almost like an artwork, like statues or something. Yeah, it looked like a sculpture, and, and it's it's so obvious. I mean, pareidolia is one thing, you know, the the um, the tendency to see patterns that look familiar in random in random things, okay, in in mm-hmm. chaos. You know, you you'll look at clouds and you'll see rabbits and horses and and you know whatever snipers. Recently, there's a meme going around a, a sniper cloud, an angel cloud. You know, that's pareidolia. You know, you'll see like patterns where they have faces in them and stuff like that. But this goes beyond that, okay. I mean, we've seen several things. We talked a week ago about the, the weird thing that looked almost like a crustacean or something coming out of a rock with tentacles mm-hmm. and, and stuff or a mollusk. And, and this week I've, I've seen this image, and you, I, you've seen it too, that it looks like a man and a woman kneeling on the ground. The man, to me, like the man had his arm around the woman's shoulders. That's what it looked like to me. Right, Fac- right. Facial features, headdresses, clothing, ornaments, um, and a basket in front of them filled with material like it was spilling out. Mm-hmm. And some people have said, oh, it looks like they were, you know, they were petrified by some blast, kind of like the, the victims at Pompeii. But no, it's not like that at all because the details on the facial features and everything are there to see. I mean, it's not like the crusty looking uh, people who, the forms that were left by the, 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 the lava filling in 
where their bodies were. You know, it's not like that. This, this is more like a sculpture. And to yeah, me, yeah. it looks like a sculpture that's been sitting on the surface, um, being weathered by the wind and the dust for thousands or millions of years. Well, and the you know, the, the the features are exaggerated, like yeah. you would see in a, in, in a sculpture, or like a, uh, almost like a cartoon in a little. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean they they look like it looks like an art object is what it looks mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean that uh, it would be it would be stuff like that that you know that would survive over the years. Um, anything you know carved into rock. You know, especially extremely, you know, hard rock, or um, uh, you wouldn't see, uh, you know, metal. Any kind of metal structures would have long since have have dissolved away, but but rock will will persist for for a long, long time. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh, again, it's it's one of these intriguing things it just kind of makes you go hmm yeah, yeah. Uh, you know but uh, you know it's uh, until until we actually put people on the surface of mars you know actual living astronauts who can walk around and look at these things right. you know we're, we're we're never going to we're never going to know for sure and uh, you know i don't know i mean it's uh, uh, they if if they are slowly trying to release evidence that there was past life on Mars, I mean they're they're sure going about it at a snail's pace because the majority of these images that are being uh, released to the public uh, they don't get they're not getting a lot of traction. I mean they're right, they're, see, right. they're seen mostly on you know these right. uh, uh, well, UFO well, sites well, and things like that. Yeah. Well, there's only a few people relatively speaking, in terms of the population, who are convinced already that there's something there, who are going to take the time and the effort to go through these images painstakingly, you know, and look look for things. And I'll, I will say that I have seen a lot of things, you know, in some of these Mars images that people say, this is this, is this, and, this is that, and it's just not there for me. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see a rock. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> lot, there's lots like that. But then there are others which are obviously, I'm sorry, but obviously... Debris, like machined object debris, uh, masonry, um, what look like you know parts of buildings, things like that, and there's just you know once you have a, a, you reach a certain threshold level of a number of these things, you have to say there's something going on here. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree with that. Um, you know, and. and Another interesting uh, point is that, um, you know, the United States is not the only one currently that has, now we're the only ones that have like a, you know, a, a rover running around the surface of Mars, but, right. you know, in, India now has a, uh, a satellite that is taking high resolution photographs uh, over Mars right well, now. Well, I, I, I have to say that one of the reasons this is probably low-key, and it's kind of being allowed just to leak out, in my opinion, is because if someone were to blatantly say there was a civilization on Mars and it's gone, you know, an, an official government, were to, if a government were to say that, it would launch a cutthroat space race. 
You know, I don't believe that we're going to see this, oh, kumbaya, we're all going to go <laughs> together, we're all friends, we're going to go you know, colonize Mars. No, it, it would create a, a gold rush type mentality, grab the new territory. You know, there may be technology there. we got to get there first. We have to lay claim to everything. And we know that, really, on the, if, if you want to talk about being on the ground, in, in terms of the tech, we're there first. We were there first with Viking. But, you know, of course, guys like Olaf Phillips say, you know, that maybe that maybe the, maybe there is a secret space navy, and maybe we've been there for a while. We've actually been there with people, and we're just right. not to talk about it because of the political, the geopolitical ramifications of something like that. Um, I don't know. It's one of those things where they're going to have to condition us and get us used to the idea. And when you think about that, then you have to think about the whole idea of other conspiracy theories that have been around for years. Even what some politicians have warned us about. Even what uh, Werner von Braun warned us about, which is the possibility that the threat of a so-called alien invasion can be used as a ruse to control the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you said, okay, there's there's civilization on Mars, it's going underground for, to survive, and, oh, no, we've made them mad, they're coming to get us, you know, and then <laughs> that's where the UFOs are coming from and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that if the government told them that, they would believe it, and they would do whatever they were told. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and uh, uh, yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, I I think that I think that eventually it will get to the point if if we survive that far, where the the entire planet will be you know part of you know a, a combined space fair you know uh, yeah. space faring race. If, but, if we put, if we could put our differences aside and, and right. actually, do it. yeah. But see, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a long time, I mean, and of we're, course you know, we're well, not in our age. Oh no! Well, we we would have to colonize the the solar system first. That's how you learn, you know. Yeah, yeah. we would have to set up colonies and and uh, industries and, and manufacturing and all that stuff across the solar system before we could even think about leaving. You know, we were talking earlier about about this guy that says that that warp drive is going to be possible. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that that we don't people don't think about even leaving the solar system is a monumental feat because the what, what's called the the Kuiper belt and then the Oort cloud right is it's, it's basically like a minefield you know mm-hmm. particles fr- from you know microscopic size up to probably planetary body size mm-hmm. swarm around the solar system like a shell you know like a mm-hmm. And and so, traversing that, the only possible way, in my opinion, light speed's not going to do it because you're going to run into everything, even if you're going real fast. You know, so yeah, a warp drive would be the only way if you could skip across space. But then, if you do that, you have no way of knowing where you're going to come out. In other words, you might. What if you come out in the middle? What if you come out of warp in the middle of an asteroid? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really tricky proposition. Oh well, I mean, you know, not not just an asteroid, but I mean, uh, there are stars and, and yes. planets that are below uh, the uh, what's the word, the light threshold yeah. that we that we can't see. We have no idea that they're there because they're not bright enough. Right. 
To and plus, we, we think we know so much, but you know, conditions outside the solar system could be very different than inside. Um, right. We see that sometimes when the solar system passes through a a a big band of of uh, interstellar dust, it actually changes the solar system's weather. Uh, mm-hmm. We just went we just went through that, and people blamed it on global warming. And before we ever entered that dust cloud. NASA and others said, hey, as we enter this dust cloud, temperatures are probably going to increase across the solar system because it's going to agitate the electromagnetic field of the sun and the, even the planets and, and so forth. And that's, we've still got some protection probably from the Oort cloud and from the magnetic field of the sun against that stuff. But if you were to jump outside of the solar system, right into the middle of something like that, you don't know what it would do. Right, right. Interstellar place is not friendly for children or other higher vertebrae. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know that's it's uh, um, it's it's an interesting topic, and I think it it, it falls right along lines uh, with our guest tonight because tonight we're going to be talking uh, with uh, Kathleen Marden. Uh, who, uh, she is a MUFON investigator and she specializes in, um, abduction research. And she's also the niece of, uh, Betty Hill, uh, famous, of course, for the, uh, the Betty and Barney Hill, uh, UFO abduction case. And, uh, so, I mean, if, if, you know, if, if anyone would, uh, you know, have any, uh, any knowledge on the possibility that the planet is being visited from uh, interstellar uh, beings who have managed to work through all the stuff that we've just been talking about, then uh, maybe Kathleen could uh, uh, give us some kind of uh, insider knowledge that, that she's heard about. I don't know. You know, What do you think? Well, maybe so. I mean, you know, whoever these beings are and wherever they're coming from... Um Maybe they've mastered some of these problems. Maybe they've conquered the physics involved and, and so forth. So we'll, uh, we'll see what she thinks. We'll see. Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, go ahead and take our, our, our first break here, and then when we come back, uh, we'll have uh, uh, Kathleen Martin on the line, and uh, we will start this uh, absolutely, it's going to be an absolutely fascinating show. I know it will be. So this is Tim Swartz. You are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. So stay tuned. We will be right back. team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom built computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz, and of course you are listening to us on the PSN Radio Network, where we've got all kinds of uh, fascinating programs here. So, I mean, if you're listening to us, uh, go to the website, psn-radio.com, and uh, uh, look for look for some of our other programs. Uh, you got Future Theater, uh, Skywatchers Radio. I mean, it's just a plethora of uh, fascinating programs. So, uh, Mike, yes, I want to uh, introduce you to Kathleen Martin. She's on the line with us right now. So, Mike, Kathleen, Kathleen, Mike. Hey, Kathleen. Glad Hi, to have you on Mike. The show. Great, thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, Kathleen is uh, um, uh, was was very gracious to to be with us uh, here today, and I, I I tell you something, Kathleen, I have been a, a fan of your books for quite a while now. I mean, um, naturally, uh, captured has has been a favorite of mine, but I'm also science uh, was wrong. What an absolutely Great book. 
uh, I, I tell you something. I just I love that book, and, and I just I, you know I really I really applaud you for for writing that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, my what? my friend and colleague Stanton Friedman wrote half of that book too, and it was a lot of fun to do, and it was a book that needed to be written. Oh, really? Uh, why? Why is that? I mean, I... Why is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. What we did is we pointed out case after case in the history of science where uh, some. Uh, highly uh, educated, powerful, politically connected scientists had made proclamations of of impossibility and were later proved wrong. And the same thing is going on today in terms of uh, UFOs and ET contact, alien abductions, as a complete denial by mainstream conservative scientists and uh, the government as well. And, uh, you know, eventually the truth will come out just as it has come out in uh, the history of science. But it's going to take a very long time. And uh, in the interim, uh, those individuals who are being raked over the coals, who are being debunked, who are made to look like uh, fools or mentally ill when they are not, uh, are suffering the consequences of this kind of behavior. In the past, people such as Ignac Semmelweis, who was uh, a scientist, a medical doctor, who trained medical doctors uh, in Vienna, had developed a new system, and that new system was hand washing. Before that, hmm. uh, doctors didn't wash their hands, and there was a very high rate of childbed fever in which mothers and infants died shortly after childbirth. Do you know what happened to him? He was debunked. He was uh, declared incompetent. He was dismissed from his job at the medical school in Vienna, all for being an upstart and coming up with this new idea of washing hands because doctors were in the profession of healing and certainly their dirty hands could not harm women and infants. There had to be another reason. That's just one example that I wrote about in the book, uh, and very interesting stories indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I seem to remember that uh, there was uh, there was one doctor who, I mean, was was very outspoken in his disbelief in uh, uh, you know, germs and washing your hands. I mean, and he he actually would go to his patients with his pockets filled with human offal. You know that he had uh, uh, had been examining or had taken out of, say, like uh, corpses, and uh, just had no. I mean, just. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, you you think about that today, and and your doctor coming to your bedside to examine you with his pockets full of, ugh, you know, <laughs> intestines or what have you. Yes, yes, and you know the what they would do is they would go down and they would autopsy the the patients that had died the day before, um, cut them open and dissect their bodies, and their hands were covered with the bacteria uh, that was carried. It was Streptococcus bacteria, 
and Staphylococcus bacteria. And their hands were covered with it, and they would just wipe their bloody hands on their apron and go on to the next patient upstairs um, and, and examine woman after woman internally without ever washing their hands. <laughs> well, I think what's, uh, what's, what's the saying, science only progresses one death at a time? Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Yes, it is. It really is. And, and of course, it, these these scientific uh, giants suffer for their uh, um, their for for being the upstarts that they are. But then, of course, later everyone lays claim to their ideas. Mm-hmm. That is true, and you know, many are not exonerated until after their deaths, and, right. and then. History hopefully learns from it, but history doesn't learn enough to examine uh, those topics that are not politically correct. <laughs> yeah, well, <that's>, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. It's just you know, I always I always think you know what what kind of changes in science that that you know we will be able to see within our lifetime and i look at my daughter who's who's 9 years old and i wonder what kind of changes that she'll be able to see in her lifetime and it just you know i mean the mind the mind boggles uh, i i think we're at a crossroads it's a it's a dangerous place to be because we have one one direction it can go which is to enhance Mm. our opportunities, you know, our freedoms. But the other direction seems to be so prevailing these days where it's it's more like uh, surveil everyone, make everyone part of the machine, uh, whether it's figuratively or literally part of the machine. You know, I'm, I'm very much against the whole transhumanism thing because I think that it will actually dehumanize people. Um, you know, it, who wants to be a piece of inventory, you know, well, or an asset? Yeah, an asset in some some organization that's just you know like any other asset. So I, I I think we're at a very critical point in our development. You know, I'm not big on wanting a hive mentality. <laughs> so I agree with that one for sure. I'm, I'm pretty independent here, and I have to tell you that uh, something else that needs to be changed is that when new technology is developed, we can't go directly to weaponizing it. I mean, right. that's, that's what we, we have a history of doing worldwide. Yeah, we always have, going and all the way back into antiquity. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever going to change. Maybe it's a basic part of human behavior. <laughs> well, it, well, it's either that or it's using it to control others. Hmm. Yeah. You know? And, and, and we've always done it. That's a part of human behavior. <laughs> yes, it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, uh, Kathleen, I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the, the the new experiencer survey that's just been uh, posted to the uh, Mutual UFO Network website. And uh, what, uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, first let me begin by stating that I am MUFON's Director of Experiencer Research. And I have a team with several members uh, who uh, work on a variety of things for the Mutual UFO Network. We're not investigators. We don't do investigations generally, even though all of us are qualified to do that. For the most part, 
uh, we act as a triage team so that if people uh, contact us uh, through MUFON and there's a questionnaire that they can take to get in touch with us, then we will uh, speak with them and help them decide what it is they would like to do uh, from a variety of different options. Um, another thing that we do is social research to learn more about the ET contact phenomenon. And so this is where the experiencer survey comes in. And um, back in 2012, Denise Stoner and I uh, began this as an independent research project. At that time, we developed a 45-question questionnaire. It wasn't posted online. Uh, people could uh, go to my website and copy it and then take it and send it back to me. But it's not like what MUFON has now where uh, we have a much better system for taking the new experiencer survey. The new survey is 115 questions long. It takes about 20 minutes to complete. And our goal is to look for commonalities among experiencers. And that's what Denise and I did back in 2012. And we identified 23 commonalities out of 45 questions. And we had a control group and um, made sure that those commonalities were not common to the general population. We're doing the same thing at MUFON now. And we're doing it on uh, a more expanded basis. So what are we looking for? Uh, we're looking for demographic information about experiencers. And we ask that uh, people who take this test, experiencers who take this test uh, or this survey, at least uh, know a little bit about the experience. No more than just that you saw a UFO and you had missing time. Uh, we're going to ask questions about what the ETs looked like. Uh, for example. So that's you need to have a little bit of information about what happened. Um, so let me go through this, and then I'll tell people how to go online and find this um, experience or survey. Okay. So besides the demographic information, we're looking for uh, the possibility of family contact. Is this running? along family genetic lines, or is this a one-time event, uh, or is it particular to just this one person? And uh, if it is running along family lines, who else in the family has been taken? We want to know who's been taken and for how long. How many generations back does this go? And we're looking for characteristics of people in these families, too. We know that experiencers tend to be more psychic or intuitive than the general population. Does this run in this person's family? And is this directly related to contact experiences? Or is this some, a characteristic that runs in that particular family? So that's another thing. We're also looking for physiological evidence. Uh, what kind of experiences have individuals had? Have they developed any medical problems as a result of that? That sort of thing. We're looking at individuals' beliefs. Has this affected religious beliefs if they've had religious beliefs? Um, how, what other attitudes do they have? 
was this experience positive? Was it negative? Was it positive and negative at the same time? Uh, was it fearful for them? Or, or what, how did they react from having this experience? We want to know what kinds of experiences they've had. Was this a physical contact after they saw a UFO? Was this a contact that was initiated by them? Was this uh, an out-of-body experience? Was it channeled? Uh, is it uh, related to paranormal experiences in their homes? So uh, many, many questions there. We want to know the emotional impact that this has had on people. Um, we, we also have asked some questions about government involvement. Have these individuals been harassed by um, someone that they think might come from the government? We don't know that for sure, but what are their attitudes toward this and what kind of harassment, if they've right. had it, have they had? Um, well, for you know, for the listeners out there, who just so they know exactly who, who you are, you're the niece of Betty Hill, who is the first modern female UFO abductee whose case was reported at the time. And I'm assuming that you had a lot of personal experiences growing up with things like uh, strange people asking questions and and other th- weird things happening. Is that correct? Um, yes, I was. I I was a first-hand witness to harassment that took place, um, and entering uh, people who have entered Betty's home to do weird things. Uh, I suppose uh, to freak Betty out if they could, and to make her look like she was crazy if she happened to report it. She was smart enough to to keep all of that secret, and uh, very, very few people knew it. But I have to tell you, when I was in college, I uh, was living at Betty's house. This is after Barney passed away at age 46. I moved into an apartment in the basement of Betty's house because that is when the harassment stepped up. It was at that point. When they thought there was no longer a man around to kind of stand up to him. Yes, absolutely, or yeah. to or to uh, just be a listener or being sympathetic toward Betty. Yeah, you know that's that's when she was vulnerable. They wanted to get her at the most vul- vulnerable time in her life, and that's why I moved in with her. Just at least she would have support from from me, even though I was uh, young and in college at the time. It was somebody who was there with her. And I have to tell you that one day I was down in my apartment and uh, I heard what I thought was Betty come into the house. And so I went upstairs. We always kept the doors unlocked between our apartments. And I called for her. I looked for her. It wasn't Betty. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I went back downstairs and started studying again. And then I heard a loud noise. And I heard a door open, and, and uh, I heard, I think I heard a door slamming, too, and, and uh, sounds of somebody running or moving quickly. So I went running up the stairs again. The closet door was open. There was a baseball bat on the floor that had been in the closet. I'm lucky I didn't start opening closet doors. 
Oh, my uh, gosh. The front door to her apartment was wide open. The front door to her home was wide open. And there was a man in a brown suit running down the street. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's that's, yeah, that's a little too thing. close for comfort. Well, d- <laughs> down here, we're, down here in, in my neck of the woods, that would not end up well for the person coming in the house. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I started to say where where you live at Bike. I mean, they they couldn't even get close to the house because of your dogs. That's true too. <laughs> yeah. Come in my house, and you're either going to get a haircut or something worse. <laughs> uh, uh, well, Kathleen, I just uh, I, I I know our listeners are, are are screaming at us right now. Where uh, where can they go online to uh, uh, to see the survey that uh, the the new uh, the experiencer survey? Okay. Well, first go to mufon dot com m u f o n dot com. When you get onto Mufon's um, homepage, then look at the top bar um, that gives you a menu. And on that menu bar, you'll see the word research. So click on research, and it will. Um, you'll see a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, go down to the word experiencer and hover over that word experiencer. There will be three choices that come up. One will be experience or questionnaire. You don't want that. If you take that questionnaire, then it's going to put you in contact with a member of MUFON's experience or research team. The second one will be experience or survey. That is what we are doing right now. That is the new research project we are doing with 115 questions that we need so much help with, and we certainly appreciate anyone who is willing to help us out by taking that experiencer survey. The next uh, selection down from that would uh, just be an experiencer page where there are some articles that you can read uh, if you'd like to. But the big one, the biggie, is experiencer survey. So please do it. So, uh, what is uh, for those in our audience who who may not f- be familiar with the uh, the term? What what is your definition of an experiencer? Well, you know that was something that we wrestled with for years, and we uh, my team used to be called the uh, abduction research team, and so and then there was an outcry about political correctness from some experiencers who who said, "Wait a minute, abduction implies a negative experience." I don't consider my ne- my experiences to be negative. I haven't been treated badly by these uh, aliens, so I don't like that word. So hmm. we, um, John Mack, actually is the first person who, uh, that I'm aware of who used the term experiencer, and it's more of a generic term. You know, the word contactee implies that it was a positive experience. If you go back to the contactees of the 1950s who were meeting up with Space Brothers, we still have contactees who are having these very positive experiences. We have abductees who are having negative experiences, a lot of them. But then we have a word experiencer that covers everybody in every category as a generic 
term for anyone who is having contact with uh, aliens or non-humans, regardless of whether it is positive or negative. So what what is your general feeling? I mean, do you think that there's more than one race of beings or species of beings who are visiting the Earth? Or that, do they have different political agendas or some are um, a threat to us, some some are not? I mean, what, what do you think is the truth behind the whole well, UFO phenomenon? I have, I have researched this for uh, the past 25 years pretty much on a, a full-time basis and spoken with most of the major researchers, I could probably say all of the major researchers, about this. And uh, it's very perplexing. Uh, There are some people who have very, very strong feelings that all of this is positive. There are an equal number of people who feel that all of this is highly negative. So uh, it appears to me based upon my research, that there are uh, a number of different groups who are uh, coming here from who knows where. Some of them might be coming from uh, within this galaxy, from another solar system. Uh, Some might be interdimensional beings who are not far from us, but who uh, can walk back and forth through this uh, a kind of magnetic veil that uh, opens up from time to time. There, I mean, it is so perplexing, and there are so many different facets of all of this. Right. But in, in terms of uh, those that seem to be coming in structured craft, uh, they all pretty much seem to have a similar agenda. And, uh, you know, that is to do, uh, to take humans, whether it's through an abduction or through consent, uh, you're not awake and waiting for them, generally. Uh, (laughs) They're coming, they they might take you from an external environment occasionally if you're out there, and in the beginning that's probably what they did the first time, such as with Betty and Barney and Hill in 1961, and Antonio Villas-Boas in in 19, what was it, 57 or 58 in Brazil, Mm -hmm. uh, and others. But uh, they're coming, and and mostly nowadays they're coming uh, into your house at night. Whether you're asleep or not, many experiencers can't sleep at night. They're, They're too frightened of being taken. They lie awake, and then they see this light come into their room. They they uh, remember the beginning of these experiences. Sometimes they're woken up uh, during this process, but have most experiencers have some conscious, continuous recall of right. these events. We know so- that it. That it's not sleep paralysis or right. hypnagogic hallucinations. Well, these these uh, these encounters go back, you know, through human history, and they've always been recorded, often seen through a religious veil or, or uh, of wherever you know whatever culture they're in. So, do you think it's possible that these beings actually have been here with us the whole time, even if they say they're from somewhere else, in order to kind of keep us from looking? You know, under our own oceans, but underneath our own mountains, you know, maybe they've been here all along and they take what they need. They see us as a resource. What do you think about that? 
Well, I think that it's possible that uh, some of them uh, have been here for a very long time and have been using the Earth. Uh, Some of them might have come more recently. And, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to hide out under our mountains and under our oceans uh, than to come in and out of our atmosphere and risk being shot at. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, uh, there's another possibility, too, and that is that they've come here more recently or that they've come here periodically throughout human history or maybe throughout the history of the Earth to check in for periods of time uh, to see how we're doing and then perhaps to leave again and then come back uh, for another study at a later time to see how uh, human society is progressing uh, to uh, see if we've destroyed ourselves yet or if we're in the process of maybe doing that. You know, if you look at the modern history of ET contact, all of uh, the UFOs, started showing up in large numbers uh, after we exploded the first nuclear bomb. Um, and, uh, you know, they've, the alarm bell might have gone up. And, and we know for uh, a fact that they have uh, been very concerned about nuclear weapons. They have shut down uh, nuclear weapons and silos at bases uh, in the United States and also overseas. Um, and see, I, I see that more as a hostile move. I, I know people say, well, look, they're trying to keep us from destroying ourselves. They're intervening. You know, the, to me, that's a way of saying, no, we're in charge. We will shut you down. Don't dare try to defend yourselves. You know, we have the power. Your little toys don't mean anything to us. We can do what we want to. That's the way I see it. It's almost like an overlord sort of a move when you go around well, shutting down people's nuclear weapons. You know, that's that's one opinion on yeah. it, and, and different people have different opinions. None of us know what the truth is. Other people yeah. believe that they're saying, we're not going to let you destroy yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you need to get along with each other. So who knows? We don't know. <laughs> well, if we are a resource to them, and the planet is a resource, and always has been, if they actually live here, then they might have that attitude. <laughs> you know, don't irradiate the planet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Here too. Don't destroy our habitat. <laughs> well, well, look at. I mean, I mean, there's there have been supposedly a lot of uh, UFOs seen over Fukushima ever since the disaster happened there. So, yeah, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's always interested me about. The, the the whole experience or phenomena is and, and and you talked a little bit about this uh, when you're talking about your survey is the possibility that this is a uh, a generational thing that if if you have had these types of experiences chances are your parents have also their grandparents and so on and so forth uh, I mean do you uh, do you see this as a more likely scenario rather than just people just uh, being randomly picked up uh, just because they're at the uh, wrong place at the wrong time? Well, on other surveys, uh, I have noticed that this does appear to follow family genetic lines, and it makes sense. Why would they just go around randomly picking up individuals? We know that individuals are taken over and over again throughout a lifetime. 
periodically. Um, and it, it does appear that this does follow family genetic lines. It's probably some kind of longitudinal genetic study. Uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what they're doing. Are they uh, trying to make a better human? Are they so concerned about our behavior and the possibility that we're going to destroy this planet that they are attempting to change our behavior uh, slowly over time? But, you know, I don't know about that because it doesn't appear to be uh, any better than it was. It's, we're living in a pretty frightening <laughs> world. So they're not moving quickly enough if that is what they're attempting to do. Right. Um, you know, some but people then again... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to say, what if they're attempted to steer our uh, steer us toward the very uh, um, the, the future I was talking about earlier, where we're all part of the machine, we're part of the hive mentality, we're all just inventory. You know, um, they're trying to steer us in that direction through strategically placed um, crashes. Uh, from which you know technology can be garnered, um, technology exchange programs with uh, government agencies, things like that. They're actually they have a long term plan, which is they know that if certain things, if certain ideas and technologies become available to us, there will always be those who will push them in the direction that they would prefer us to go. Boy, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes, because we're we're we're, e- we're easily look human beings. We're predictable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we yeah, always do. True. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, strategically placing certain things in the right hands, and you could pretty much guide the, the development of a of a culture. Yes, that's, just a, that's, just a thought. That's probably uh, true. But in, in terms of steering us toward more of a hive mentality, um, I've, I've spoken, I, I have uh, hypothesized and, and spoken with others who think that perhaps they are uh, attempting to upgrade us, to move us along uh, on uh, a, a scale where uh, we will not have the aggressive kind of instincts that we have, not necessarily to make us uh, a hive mentality, but perhaps to instill within humans some of the things that they value. Um, and perhaps yeah. some of these are uh, the ability to communicate telepathically. Right. Uh, see, as a human, I resent that. <laughs> because because I, the, the way I look at it is my individ, my individuality doesn't just trump the uh, uh, any overbearing human overlord's desires, but that goes triple for them. Okay, you know what I'm saying. My destiny should not be determined by a non-human species. Um, you know, I, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what, are they looking for docility? Are they looking for us to be docile, so that we're, you know, you, in all these UFO encounters, often you hear about how how they seem to be frightened of humans. You know, there, there have been those who have said, well, they put people in these certain types of altered states of consciousness because they actually are scared of the unpredictable primates. You know, um, 
What, what do well, you think? Well, look at what happened when Travis Walton woke up on mm-hmm. that craft in 1975. Uh, he picked up a weapon and yeah. uh, started swinging. That was his first reaction. They, uh, My uncle Barney was carrying a pistol. They yeah. immobilized him so that he was unable to move and unable to fight back. They know that uh, that humans are hostile. Look, we we killed 200 million of our own kind in major and minor wars during the 20th century. Right. Um, they they consider us to be somewhat malevolent, I believe, and they are uh, afraid of aggressive humans because, uh, according to Daryl Sims, they have been harmed by some of us, and Daryl well, you know, was one of them that right. harmed some of them. But you know what Daryl's perspective is. His perspective yes, is that, that they are negative and that, you know, that when we do have to harm them, it is out of an innate sense of self-preservation because they're up to no good. Yes, and, and Daryl is a friend of mine, and, you know, I, I like Daryl, and we respect each other as researchers, we have uh, a little bit of difference in opinion, possibly, um, you know, based upon our own personal backgrounds. Um, you know, he's he's been the warrior type, and I've been the social worker type. So, <laughs> of necessity, right. we have you know different personalities and different perspectives. Right. Well, I think that's uh, that's one of the interesting things about this survey, though, is that you know it it's, it it should you know, give you a better idea of uh, different cases, different experiences, and uh, you know uh, maybe uh, differences in opinions on how these people felt um, that that their encounters affected them in the long term. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be very valuable for that reason. And something else that I wanted to bring up is that uh, a number of experiencers have had healing uh, through uh, these ETs or aliens, whatever they are. And I want to explore that, too. What, what kind of healings have they had? I know that uh, some people have been healed from cancer. Uh, some people have been healed from uh, things like uh, chronic mononucleosis, uh, some from um, some sustained broken bones. And I hate to tell you this, but <laughs> Daryl told me that uh, some of the people he has worked with have had broken bones as part of the abduction process where either they fought uh, right. or perhaps there was an accident and they were dropped. And back in the spring of 2013, I uh, several experiencers contacted me independently. Nobody knew what the other one was saying. And they all told me that something had happened and they were dropped and injured. Um, some of them worse than others. Uh, but I mean, So uh, when this happens, it appears that they are then taken and the ETs do what they can to heal them. Now, why do they do that? Why do they heal humans? Are they trying to cover up the mistakes that they made? Um, or are they benevolent? Are they doing mm-hmm. this to be kind to us? Mm-hmm. And there are different opinions on that as well. Some people 
are, have very, very strong opinions that this is all positive and that they are, uh, they are here to help us. Uh, the, if, if that is true, I would like more help. <laughs> if, yeah, exactly. if, uh, if they're negative and they're here to harm us, then they haven't really done that to, to humans yet. And it appears that uh, it's been through mistakes that they have made. Well, you know, that I think, though, that they've been around long enough that there are things that go on that that uh, come down to us as folk tales of folklore. And, you know, and, and but I have to, to say that, you know, you do find evidence of human mutilations and, and people that just disappear and are never seen again and, and these types of things. And so to me, those things are harmful. Um, and I think that this really needs to be investigated more on a case-by-case basis to find out, is there possibly a human connection to this? Is right. there possibly a bad guy who was human who has done that? Or have we excluded every other prosaic explanation and, the, and we have evidence that this was through ET contact or alien contact because, uh, you know, it's it's not fair to hang this label on visitors to this earth uh, if they didn't do it. So we have to have... We have to have solid evidence that it was through ET Well, contact. that's why you have to ask if there are not factions. You know, if there are not those who you know, are working with them for their, or being used by them for an agenda... Well, there could be others who oppose that agenda. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Kind of like yeah. a Cold War type thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's it, it's like the whole. I mean, the beginning of the modern era of the UFO phenomena. The the majority of uh, beings that were seen coming out of UFOs would have been described as the as the Nordic types. You know, very very humanoid in appearance, uh, tall. You know, white blonde, that sort of thing. Uh, you have the then the UFO flap in say like France and Europe in the 1950s, which saw a preponderance of uh, dwarf-like creatures. But it wasn't really until like the uh, the the starting in the early 1970s that you started seeing right. the what we would call now the traditional you know uh, gray uh, big-eyed uh, aliens. Right. So well, I mean, it seems obvious to me that we have you know yeah. like different you know uh, Species races. Or something. Yeah, yeah, something different. Well, well, remember the hairy dwarves in Central and mm. South America. Right. Um, well, and they're, st- they're, yeah, still they're still being seen them. down there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, again, yeah, I have to have to wonder when I when I look at these entities, as we talked about many times, you know, and this, uh, you know, as I wrote in my book, you know, no matter how outlandish they seem, they really do seem to all... All of them, even the greys, they conform to an earthly vertebrate template. They have certain characteristics, which are mammalian, reptilian, amphibian, um, or a mix thereof. And so, you know, it's just as if you had never seen an octopus before, you would think it was an alien, but it's not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people, they, when they have these experiences, they're, you know, they're, they're so freaked out by what they're experiencing and seeing that the assumption is this is alien, and if the being says, oh, yeah, I'm from up there. That's where we come from. Don't look over there. Don't look under that ocean right there. You know, don't look in that cave system. You know, it, as long as this, this goes on, we, we may never figure out what's really going on. I, I really believe that the answers to this stuff lie a lot closer to home than we're being led to believe. You know, I think that all of this requires 
very careful, systematic study. Yes. Um, such as what MUFON is doing and such as what the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters is doing as well to, to look for commonalities um, to, and to look for differences and to try to figure out exactly what is going on, not through anecdotal reports, not through studies where we don't have quantitative data. We need to have quantitative data, first of all. We have to be able to analyze that data, and then we have to come up with uh, a, a premise for uh, you know, what is actually occurring and in what numbers. Which that in itself is, is going to be so difficult because the phenomena tends to be, by nature, very uh, evasive. Well, especially if it's all coming from different sources. Yeah. You know, it's well, to lock it in. Right. We can separate and it. That's what the about, experiencer uh, survey at right. MUFON is designed to do, and that's what freeze survey is also designed to do, is try to categorize this, try to separate this, see right. if we can. I don't know that we can, but well, here, we're here's going the other to thing attempt that, to do it. Well, here's the other thing that I, that I actually have seen over the years. Human agendas, you know, groups that want to believe a certain thing, and so the data will become skewed to support that point of view. Um, I think that happens a lot, and that's something that, uh, you know, I think that the whole exopolitics thing is that's and, and, and disclosure movement it has a certain Star Trek mentality, and so that's what they push, and they ignore data that doesn't fit that. That's why the science is so important, and this commonality study is a scientific study. Right. Well, and you know, it it it, it makes me it makes me really happy, you know, to see you uh, doing this, especially you know now that we have at our hands, you know, uh, computers that uh, can can take and analyze this data very efficiently. I mean, I know in the past people like, you know, Jacques Vallée have attempted similar types of uh, 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 surveys and have, you know, I mean, they've had, they've had difficult, you know, they had a difficult time because, I mean, you know, the, the uh, analytical uh, systems and computers just weren't up to uh, being able to, to to handle the cases, but now I think that we really are at a point where we could learn a lot through these types of surveys. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. If I mean, if uh, um, you know, if, if people are just willing uh, to do the work and not be afraid of the slings and arrows that you know is inevitably going to be shot in their directions. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. and and uh, we do have that at MUFON, uh, a, a system that is analyzing the data. We also have some very intelligent people on hmm. MUFON's experience or research team. One is Michael Austin Melton, uh, Ph.D., who uh, is a clinical, he's a retired clinical psychologist, worked for many years with veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, has done a lot of research for his master's degree and his Ph.D. in psychology, very valuable member. We have Dr. George Medich, who is a retired medical doctor, um, very, very bright guy, uh, 
and a very valuable member of the team. We have Dr. Um, Robert Upson, who, uh, again, another guy with a doctorate. We have Craig Lang, who you might recognize that name. He's been a researcher for a very long time. He has a master's degree in uh, computer engineering, but uh, he is currently working as a hypnotherapist full-time. Uh, and uh, he is actually MUFON's assistant director of experiencer research. We have Denise Stoner, who uh, is an experiencer, who uh, has been with MUFON for very a very long time in various positions. Um, she has been a chief investigator in the state of Florida and uh, very instrumental down there. Uh, also has uh, quite a background in uh, the paranormal and paranormal investigations. And in addition to many, many years of experience investigating abduction cases, uh, for MUFON. So uh, she is my right-hand woman hmm. and hmm. fills in for me when uh, I'm off at speaking engagements. And uh, she is just very, very knowledgeable and highly intelligent. Then we have Erica Lukes, who is a younger woman and uh, has a real interest in this topic. Uh, she uh, is MUFON's director uh, state director in Utah and uh, is uh, more or less learning about all of this right now but also assisting us. So, uh, you know, we have we have a really good team of highly intelligent individuals there and many of them have advanced degrees and are willing to roll up their sleeves and pitch in on all of this and, and help out with this questionnaire. They help to develop the questions for this, and uh, it's, it's a great team, I have to say, to work with. Well, you know, it's, it's so nice that uh, there you have so many, you know, professional people who are involved in this project, um, because, I mean, I know, I mean, we all know that there are a lot of uh, 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 scientists and physicists who are really interested in this phenomena and would like to do more with it, but they know that they can't because uh, they have to think about their careers. You know, they know that if it gets out that they're interested in this, that I mean, that's it. That's it for them and their career. They might as well go and start, you know, asking people if they want fries with that. Absolutely, you have you have to be careful. During my professional career, I didn't let on that Betty and Barney were my aunt and uncle or that I had a serious interest in this topic. I was sort of done in the closet, and that's what is occurring for individuals who are scientists, uh, who are mental health professionals. Sometimes that you're, you're, you can more easily uh, be interested if you're a mental health professional than, <laughs> than as a as, uh, uh, you know, a physical scientist, and uh, they just have a secret interest in this. They're researching it, and so many of them are so relieved when they finally retire and they can actually openly express their serious interest in this phenomenon and and are making great contributions in, in their retirement. Well, you know, you look at somebody like John Mack, 
and I mean the I mean and his his initial research into this I mean and he I mean he conducted it uh, uh, very professional uh, professionally I mean he he wasn't out there saying that yes you know UFOs are real we're being visited by aliens or all that yet still I mean there were people that were demanding uh, that he be removed uh, you know from his job. Just just because he was doing research into it, and I think that's just—I think that's just so sad. I think it's sad too. And you know, if you if you have an interest in the paranormal, you have an interest in de- near death experiences, then it's uh, you have more of an ability to research that if you're employed by a university than if you are interested in UFOs, um, the physical reality of those, and uh, an examination of the evidence, or in ET contact cases. Even researchers at universities, such uh, as was done at Harvard through uh, Richard McNally and mm-hmm. Susan Clancy in the infamous Harvard study on, uh, for false memory, uh, had a little bit of difficulty. Susan Clancy wrote in her book that she was advised that she could destroy her career by even looking into this skeptically. Uh, so that was, that was a consideration at that time. And if you look at the scientific screenings that are done, uh, by social scientists, and you look at the screening, for example, for fantasy proneness. Well, what are some of the characteristics of being fantasy prone? Uh, have you ever uh, thought that something was going to happen and then it did? Uh, have you ever had a vision of something happening and then it did? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. If, you, if you've had a psychic experience, you're fantasy prone. Uh, if you've yep. uh, had an, a contact with non-human entities, uh, you're fantasy prone uh, over yeah. and over again. You can see that right. these are very conservative and biased against uh, paranormal experiences. Well, it's it's basically using ridicule in a sly form. It's a way to discredit someone because you're insinuating that there's a mental illness involved if you have these oh, certain experiences. And you know, I mean, you say conservative, but I know lots of conservatives. You know that that believe that you know that they've had premonitions and dreams that came true and you know whether they say it's from God or, or whatever. Are they fantasy prone? You know, I mean, it, it's one of those things where anybody who wants to discredit you. Would try their best to make you look mentally ill, unstable, uh, delusional. You know all, all these types of things, and uh, it usually again is, is all about an agenda. You know what's the agenda behind wanting to portray people as as uh, delusional? You know that there's an agenda at work here because there are things that, that there are those who do not want certain things to be realized. Well, let me tell you that. Uh Almost that most humans have had some of these experiences at least once. Deja vu, a premonition, something like that, a, a dream that came true. Uh, most have had that kind of experience at least one time. Uh, the, the way you separate this out is it has this become a daily pattern 
in people's lives? Are they right. speaking with, uh, are they being harassed by non-humans on a daily basis? Uh, are, are they having all of these other uh, experiences that fit into a, uh, a category of, the, of, of psychosis? And that is the big line of demarcation. Is this right. individual psychotic? Some are. And, and well, well, we well, run keep into in mind, them in our investigations. Keep in mind, and this is something that, that the debunkers often um, gloss over or ignore, there's no such thing as a genuine mass hallucinatory experience. Mm-hmm. An hallucination can only occur in the mind of one percipient, a true hallucination. Um, so when people are experiencing events and they're seeing the same thing or they're hearing and seeing the same strange things, if it's more than one person, and particularly if it's more than two people, then it's it's a real event. And, and I think that those are the ones that really um, are harder for these people to debunk. That's true. And uh, if you go back to the 60s, think about uh, all of the cases of mass hallucinations of UFOs. We right. knew they couldn't exist. It has to be a mass hallucination, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> There's no such thing as a mass hallucination. Now, there can be a, ma- there can be a mass, a, a mass uh, miscomprehension. Misinterpretation. Misinterpretation, miscomprehension. Yeah, there could be some sort of uh, mistake that everybody makes in their assumption of what something is, but they still all saw whatever it was. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you hear uh, debunkers talk about how human perception is not trustworthy. You cannot believe anything that anyone uh, says because of the fallibility of human perception. Well, let me talk about that for a minute. Okay, you might have uh, observed a car accident. And when you're questioned, you might say that the car was blue when, no, that was wrong, it was actually light green, you were in a state of shock. Um, You know, though, that that car accident happened. Maybe you're a little confused about some of the details because you were in a state of shock or because it didn't register in your memory, but you know that that car accident happened. And that's, I mean, the bunkers would want us to think that human perception is so bad that we can't, we don't even know whether a car accident actually happened. That's not true. <laughs> mm. Oh, I know the, the biggest one is, uh, gosh, who was it? I think it was Michael Shermer. I saw him on television one time, and he said that uh, that airline pilots you know, were were not. Uh, he didn't consider them to uh, to be good observers of what was going on around them uh, when when reporting uh, UFO sightings. And I was just like, oh my god. Well, I mean, if if an airline pilot is not a good observer with with their job, then I guess I'm going to stop flying. <laughs> I mean, what what a ridiculous what a ridiculous statement to make. Go back to the, the sightings, the UFO sightings in Washington back in 1952. Mm-hmm. So it was July 1952, and uh, there are uh, these radar visual sightings. Uh, the pilot, jet planes are scrambled, Air Force planes are scrambled into the air, and the pilots on board these planes start chasing these things that are seen both on the radar screen below 
and by the pilots in the planes. Hmm. Uh, so, and and they're seen on these screens below by very experienced radar operators who uh, are used to seeing uh, inversions, uh, little marks on the radar screen uh, that uh, are caused by the weather. And, and are not real targets. They're spurious uh, radar targets. They see those all the time. It happens in Washington, D.C. all the time. Um, so what do we have when the scientific team uh, takes a look at this? Well, they say, uh, well, you, you know, those pilots, mm, you really don't know if you can believe what they <laughs> say because they might... Uh, have misperceived the, those lights in the sky that they saw and chased. There could be another reason. And besides that, they don't have exact measurements on how large that object was and exactly how far they were away from it. And then maybe those guys on the ground who saw the same thing, because we don't want the public to know that they were looking at the same target. Right. Maybe we could say, oh, it's a mistake. Uh, they didn't know how to read that radar screen. They don't know the difference between a solid target and uh, a spurious target. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always easy to uh, debunk something after after the fact, uh, guys. It is time for us to take a break right now. So uh, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Our guest tonight is Kathleen Martin. We will be right back, so please stay tuned. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. 
Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to mrufo8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. There are some who call me... Tim? Back to the Outer Edge. I'm William Michael Mott here with Tim Schwartz. It is now August 24th on uh, both of our uh, timelines because we're actually time travelers and we I'm, I'm a little bit behind Tim. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we're back and uh, we're here with <laughs> Kathleen Martin. And Kathleen, before the, before the break, I was going to ask you a question and I never got around to it. Have you ever had an experience yourself with UFOs, uh, non-human beings, uh, men in black, anything like that? When I was 16 years old, I had an experience of a close encounter with a UFO right. uh, on Country Pond in Newton, New Hampshire. I wrote about this in the book Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, but I uh, changed the book from first person to third person when I invited Stanton Friedman to join me to write two chapters in the book. So. Right. Uh, I, I am uh, described myself as Betty's niece, and my mother, grandmother, Betty, my brother, a family friend, and I had a close encounter with a craft. Uh, it, uh, it ascended vertically. It descended uh, vertically in what we called a falling leaf pattern, meaning that it sort of rocked back and forth right. as it descended. Uh, it... Uh, 
was close to us at one time. Uh, it we we flashed a light at it. It turned on its lights, uh, its internal lights that it hadn't had on before that when we flashed the light at it. Uh, we lost sight of it uh, as it moved away, and we drove in the car to uh, another location to look at it. And we discovered at that time that it was it had joined another one, and the two were hovering over the ice uh, on Country Pond. Uh, my mother was the one who saw them. She called us to draw our attention to them. One of them uh, shot out what appeared to be a light, but it didn't move like a regular light. In other words, you know how you turn on a flashlight and the light is immediately there and full length. This seemed to be moving toward her uh, in increments rather than just being one light. It hit her, and she screamed. And we became uh, very <laughs> frightened and mm -hmm. got into the car and left the area at that point. Wow. So did you feel like this was something malevolent that was going on, or was it just something totally so, I hate to use the word alien, but just like a whole other uh, way of thinking from something unknown that it, it's not really good or bad, it's just different? What, what do you think? Well, we didn't think that it was malevolent, but we did. Okay. We were frightened right. by the unknown. And this was during a time when a team of scientists had asked my Aunt Betty to participate in a series of contact experiments with them. They called it psychophysics experiments, where she right. would telepathically attempt to contact them every uh, evening and uh, working up to a certain date when the event would hopefully take place. And when she was doing these experiments, she was attempting to bring vector craft into my grandparents' farm. I grew up across the street in Kingston, New Hampshire, from my grandparents. And that is when the family started to see UFOs and had uh, that one close encounter. And uh, later on that year, one actually did come in and land on my grandparents' farm uh, it left physical trace evidence on the ground. It was observed coming in by one of our neighbors, and my, it woke my grandmother up, and she also saw it out there. Yeah, that one, uh, that one made a lot of noise when it came in, didn't it? Uh, it well, I don't know how this happened, but it, uh, it did make some noise. It crashed. Apparently, I sheared off the tops of some trees. There was a beautiful little stand of birch trees, and it sort of splayed them all out into a circle before it moved to an, an, another location nearby where there were no trees. <laughs> now, uh, uh, besides the incidents that you just described where, where Betty was uh, consciously uh, uh, making an attempt to reestablish uh, contact. I mean, did uh, um, uh, were, there, were there any more, uh, did she have any more experiences? I mean, I know that uh, uh, she, she became interested in the whole subject, you know, from that time on, but I mean, did she uh, uh, did she have any uh, uh, further contacts or, or, or anything like that? She appears to have had some, perhaps, CE5 
experiences. Uh, mm-hmm. She would go out with uh, friends, basically, and they would look and they would flash lights, lights in the sky, and and try to make contact with them. Uh, Betty was <laughs> really ridiculed for this because she tended to become a little excited, and it might have been a there might have been a prosaic explanation for what it was. Maybe it was just a plane, uh, you know. Maybe it was a light in a distance or a street light or something. But if she said, "Gee, you know, look at that. I wonder what that is. Let's drive toward it." Then somebody could write that uh, that Betty said it, saw a streetlight and thought it was a UFO when they didn't tell the whole story and their intention was to harm Betty. And I want to say that because that really makes me angry that this happened. And also, let me tell you uh, how she was set up by Philip Class. Mm, okay, there yes, was, I want to hear that. Yeah, me too. There was uh, a young newspaper reporter in the state of New Hampshire who was enamored with Philip Class and and was a self-styled skeptic. And he was writing to Class, and, and so Class uh, suggested that he go out with Betty, befriend Betty and go out with Betty and, and look for these UFOs with her and report all of Betty's activities back to class. And so he was doing this. I have a copy of the letters, actually. And he was doing this, and he'd write to to class and, and talk about what had occurred. Well, one time he stated to class that there were, there was another couple who had gone with Betty besides him, and that they uh, had all, except for Betty, had walked out to the railroad tracks and looked down the railroad tracks. Betty wasn't with them because she was having a problem with her camera, and she was back in the car tinkering with the camera to see if she could get it to work. Well, the rest of them were out on the railroad tracks and saw this light coming from a distance, and lo and behold, it ended up being the Boston and Main Railroad. So how did Philip Class tell this story on, uh, the, I believe it was the Larry Glick show. It was a national radio show that was heard by millions of people. What Philip Class said is that Betty had taken these people out to try to vector in a craft, and Betty was the only one who thought it was a UFO. It was a complete lie. And when he told that on the radio, Betty heard about it, and there was a huge falling out with that young reporter because she finally realized what he was up to. Now, what was Phil Class's response to that young reporter? Oh, well, don't worry about it. I've already apologized to Betty. Do you think that apology went out on over the public airways? Of course no. not. The public didn't hear that. It's still being reported by debunkers. Well, see, this, 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 this is, again, the thing with class is, again, uh, he's a perfect example of the type of person I'm talking about, the person who wants to discredit people, has no problem in trying to portray people as insane or delusional or, or stupid or whatever. And they'll they'll go to any length to do it. So they have an agenda. And I often think the agenda is to discredit anything that actually frightens them, a, a worldview that they cannot themselves handle. Well, I think for some people that is true, but I think that for others, 
they have an agenda that it is based upon uh, the military's agenda and the federal government's agenda, and that is that uh, they do not want the public to believe that that this is a real phenomenon. Right. So you think Class um, has some sort of connection? You think he I has intel- intelligence connections? I do. I can't prove it. Right. I'm trying to. I'm. Lo- I'm still looking for evidence, but I've collected a lot of evidence that leads me to believe that uh, that there were some connections there, that there was a kind of conspiracy, and I'm going to be writing about that in my next book. Well, when, when you think about these people that do these types of things and misinformation, misinformation, disinformation, misdirection. Um, you know, I, I think that that goes on a lot. I think there are people in the UFO community that do it, too. But I also think that sometimes the UFO entities do it, like I talked about earlier. And one incident that I've always thought was very strange was the whole star map incident that, that Betty and Barney experienced. I believe they saw the star map, that they were shown this map. But the whole idea of the way it was presented to them seems to me almost like misdirection. Um, you know, why not a hologram? Why not a computer screen? Um, why not saying we're here and you're here in this three-dimensional model? You know, if they're that advanced, instead they just roll out or, or have a map put up. That was on only in Betty's dream where they rolled out a map. Okay. In reality, under hypnosis, Betty remembered what was three-dimensional, like a hologram. So it now, was a Barney flip. didn't see this. He okay. was being examined at that time, and and then uh, that. Dr. Simon said to Betty, uh, if you can remember this, and you can remember it accurately, and it doesn't bother you too badly, I'd like you to go home and sketch this before your next appointment and bring it in with you. And so she did go home, and she did sketch what she remembered. And that was published in the first book that was ever written about that case. Right. And that book was written because there was a violation of confidentiality and Betty's and Barney's story became public. It was never supposed to be made public. Right. When it was made public, there was a huge consequence to them and their activities right. uh, because Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office, but they were very active in politics in the state. Right. Um, in working for the civil rights movement, Barney had been appointed by the governor of the state to to serve on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. They were doing a lot of very good things. Right. But uh, you know, so there was that consequence. But uh, you know, to get back to the star map work, um, it was it was published in the book. Uh, Marjorie Fish saw it. She was an amateur astronomer from Ohio, a school teacher. She'd studied sociology in college, and she uh, was a brilliant woman. She she was a member of Mensa and uh, single and was very interested but skeptical about this. She thought that she would probably find many matches when her research began. Uh, she didn't, we didn't have computers then, so she had to go to um, the university, to the astronomy department, and sit there and copy data out of their catalogs, take it home, do the mathematics. Using three dim- a three-dimensional model, she used uh, monofilament line and beads of different sizes and co- colors to construct our local galactic neighborhood out right. 55 light years. 
and uh, went for many years without ever finding a match until a new catalog was published, and in that catalog uh, was new distance data. She mm-hmm. changed some of those um, beads around on, on, those, on the lines, and she had a match at that point. Uh, and it appeared to be zeta reticuli 1 and 2, uh, other uh, stars in, in our local galactic neighborhood. The sun was on it. It's still about somewhere around 90% accurate. Right. Uh, using modern distance data. Um, well, so, you said Zeta, the Zeta, of course Zeta Reticuli was on the map, but here's the question. The, the beings that Betty encountered, Betty and Barney encountered, do you think that they were very similar to the so-called greys or were they a little more human? What, what, from what she told you, what's your take on it? Oh, they were absolutely grays. If you look at the the paintings that David Baker did, he was a New Hampshire artist. Um, I have all of all of their records, all of Betty's and Barney's files, everything they wrote about this. Right. And um, from their physical description of the ETs, they said that their skin was a, a, a grayish, bluish color. They said that uh, these beings had very large wraparound eyes, almost no nose, a slit for a mouth, no ears, no hair on their bodies. They had larger torsos, but they had spindly arms and legs. You don't see that in the sketches that David Baker uh, drew and painted uh, because he wrote that he was basing what he drew on uh, his knowledge of the human body. And as we know today, uh, you know, their bodies are not like human bodies, except for that they are humanoid and that they have a head, uh, torso, arms, and legs. You know, so that's uh, Betty and Barney, I think, interacted with uh, the greys. And there were two groups. There were the taller groups who today we know are are escorts and, and doctors and educators and scientists. And then there were the smaller, uh, three-and-a-half to four-foot-tall ones with larger heads in proportion to their bodies than the taller ones. And right. the smaller ones uh, appeared to be uh, the guards on the craft, to be the assistants. One of them frightened Betty. He stood in the door and doorway and looked in on what was happening to her as if he was guarding the entrance to the room. And uh, when uh, she was finished and she tried to uh, abscond with some alien symbols that she had found on the craft and in kind of a tablet that she called a book at that time, uh, he saw that she had it. He wouldn't let her get off the craft with that, and, and hmm. that was a, you know, a huge uproar about that. She was very upset. <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, skeptics love to point out that uh, uh, there was uh, there there was no physical evidence that Betty and Barney had an actual experience. Uh, but now, uh, as time has gone by, it's it's come out that uh, that there is, and uh, evidence that has been uh, uh, rigorously examined, and you know, uh, it's 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 extremely difficult uh, 
to say that um, that this did not happen to them, that that something unusual did happen. I'm thinking, of course, of the you know the the, the pink powder on the dress, the uh, magnetic anomalies on the car. Uh, do you want to? Uh, uh, and I know that probably not a lot of people are familiar with this. Do you want to uh, uh, describe some of these uh, things uh, for us? Yes, absolutely. You know, all of this was covered up initially because. Uh, the, the the writers and the movie makers uh, did not want to frighten the public. They wanted to give an out that uh, maybe you could think that this was uh, just a series of dreams that Betty had. The fact is that there were shiny spots on the trunk of that vehicle. They were in the exact location where Betty and Barney heard uh, code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car as they were driving down the road, attempting to escape from this craft that was above them. Uh, It... uh, and it made a compass needle spin and spin. There was a magnetic anomaly there. Uh, hmm. The dress that Betty was wearing that night was in perfect condition when she put it on on the morning of September 19, 1961. When she took it off on the morning of the 20th when they arrived home, that dress had several tears. There was a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric at the top of her zipper. The stitching was torn out. How does that happen, just riding in a car during the Mm. night? The hem was torn down on one side. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. There were were problems with that dress, so much so that she uh, placed the dress in her closet, knowing it had to be repaired before she could ever wear it again. Well, the next time she took it out, it was covered with a pink powdery substance that degraded the fiber of the dress, the fabric. It reduced it to a rag. It's been in, uh, evaluated in five different scientific laboratories with anomalous results. What uh, most scientists think today, the teams that have looked at it, is that uh, something uh, deposited from the ET's hands onto Betty's dress. The mm. reason they think that is uh, because the areas where Betty's dress was touched by their hands are the areas that were most heavily saturated with this pink powdery substance that grew on it. What was that pink powder? We believe that it was some kind of, uh, perhaps some kind of a fungus or a yeast. What theoretically could have happened, according to scientists, is that Betty's dress could have been exposed to ultraviolet light uh, or something else that killed all the bacteria on the dress. Then uh, that yeast or fungus was transferred from the ET's hands to Betty's dress. It grew, and uh, and that's what was on Betty's dress. Uh, because that was the only thing that could grow the bacteria and everything else had been killed. Uh, interesting connection here is that Betty and Barney's dog was with them the night that this occurred. Uh, she developed a fungus infection on her skin. Goodness gracious. See, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, this means that they are they are bringing microbes here which potentially could be very harmful. You know, I mean, throughout history, there have been outbreaks of epidemics associated with strange lights in the sky and even strange non-human figures, which is where we have our whole uh, idea of the Grim Reaper from, from medieval accounts. 
of this type of thing. So whether it's intentional or non-intentional, uh, they could be bringing uh, um, dangerous uh, microbes, pathogens, to, to the earth. There is a possibility, and if they're enough like us, uh, could those microbes uh, transfer to humans? We, you know, we know that animals on the earth can sometimes have diseases that humans uh, can't acquire, and that we have diseases that they can't acquire. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a, a very good question, and uh, we don't know the answers to that. Well, you know, historically there have been uh, written accounts. Uh, from you know, from chronicles and archives that of of strange beings that sound a lot like uh, UFO entities in their description, showing up right before outbreaks of the plague and being seen with, coming with the wands that put out a mist and things like that. And these are actually existing accounts. So that almost sounds like biological warfare. <laughs> Boy, those accounts certainly do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Well, you know, I can't I can't help but uh, think about. Uh, um, Barney, after the fact, developing the uh, the ring of warts around his right. uh, around his genitals. You know, they after they had placed that uh, that that cup like object uh, over him. So you know, it's just uh, it's uh, it's 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 all you know uh, uh, very unusual. And 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 consider uh, considering their dog. I mean, uh, did they remember the dog ever being uh, taken from the car, or did it remain? Uh, uh, curled up under the seat the entire time. <laughs> as far as they know, the dog wasn't taken from the car, but I, I have I suspect that it might have been touched by those entities' hands. Um, when Betty, oh, well, Barney was returned to the car first because Betty was back on the craft, angry about not being allowed to take that tablet with her. Mm-hmm. But uh, Barney said that the the dog was uh, shaking frightened, trying to push herself as much as she could under the seat. She was a little tiny dachshund. Hmm, poor thing. I um, know. Uh, has, has, has there been uh, anybody else who has um, come back from an experience like this with uh, 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 material like uh, similar to what was found on uh, uh, Betty's dress that you know of? Well, David Jacobs has talked about uh, uh, one of the individuals that he worked with whose clothing uh, had pink on it. I don't know if uh, any other researchers have experimented with this, but as part of MUFON's protocols now, uh, when we have a case of uh, alien abduction and it appears to be real and there is some evidence um, we ask the individual uh, to take their clothing, the clothing they were wearing, and to put it into uh, a paper bag in a dark closet. We want it to be able to breathe, but we want it to be dark and warm, just like Betty's closet was. And uh, then to take it out, I, I had been saying two weeks, but that is not long enough. I think that we need to wait for a month to take it out to to see what we see. I have one case that I worked on, actually, where the experiencer um, had uh, an experience, and when he uh, when it began, his T-shirt was on 
uh, the way we you normally wear a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And when he was returned, it was inside out and backwards. <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, he was in a terrible state. He was shaking. He was sweating. And, uh, so I, there's a lot of perspiration on that shirt. But I said I just gave him those instructions. But unfortunately, I said two weeks. Well, he didn't know what I was looking for. Uh, but when he took it out a couple of weeks later, I said, "Do you notice any difference in your shirt?" And he said, "Well, it's turned pink." I don't know what that's about. So uh, I asked him to package it up and mail it to me, and it was uh, it, it was exposed to the the cold because it was winter where he was. Uh, it was then exposed to ultraviolet light while I uh, photographed it, and by the time I got it to the scientist, there was not much pink powder or pink substance left on it, unfortunately. Not enough for the kind of analysis that the scientist wanted to do. Uh, But here we had one case of what appeared to be a similar effect. And, uh, you know, we just we just have to continue. I made the mistake of, of giving it too short a period of time. I hadn't thought about exposure to ultraviolet light um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe... Maybe we can get some more evidence, and it will be better than that one time. Well, it'd be it would be interesting to uh, to 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 conduct, you know, like uh, oh gosh, what's what's the term? Like a like a genetic uh, test right. on this material to see, you know, like uh, what the DNA is. Uh, well, I have to I, tell you. Go ahead. You go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, you, go with your thought. Okay. I, I was going to say, well, I have to tell you that Betty's dress has had DNA testing twice. Uh-huh. And um, I've spoken to the geneticist, and what I found out is, okay, you know, you're only going to be able to identify what is in their catalog. Right. You know, so if that is not in their catalog... Then, then they're not going to be able to identify it. Mm. But um, they could so, at least, they could at least say that it's not. Uh, they can't identify it. Right, and that's what happened on the second test. Uh. Um, uh, on the first one, uh, they were able to find some mouse DNA, you know, because it had been hanging around the house for right many years. Um, they they found some dirt that was on it. They found. Uh, some very something that was very strange, and that was uh, some Asian DNA. I don't know. Do these uh, do these ETs have uh, DNA that's similar to an Asian uh, type of family, rare Asian? I've, oh, I've heard about that in other cases. Oh, that's wild that you should say that because that's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, I was think uh, I was thinking of uh, what's his name, Bill Bill Chalker. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Bill his Chalker. Right name. Yes, yes, yes. His his research on the gentleman who um, uh, had had an experience with uh, with two uh, female humanoids, and uh, uh, after the fact, he uh, he had some hair samples. Right, and and the uh, uh, the samples showed that. Uh, um, um, 
it was like uh, from gosh, it was a combination of yes, like, uh, it, East. Was it Eastern European or yeah? Or, it, it, or was, uh, it was. It was also the, like eight, like a uh, 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 Mon- Mongolian region. But a very and, rare. Yeah, very very obscure, and then also I believe there was some Scandinavian. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I mean. This has been, I think this has happened in other cases too, where these these strange admixtures of DNA from all over and the I planet are, are found in this stuff. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. It just okay. popped into my head. I believe Basque. Yeah, yeah, yes. I believe so. Yes, I believe yes you're Basque. right. And that's very interesting because the Basques are one of the most ancient um, genetic groups in Europe. They may be the original uh, indigenous group of Europe or descended from them. And there's no other group that's related to them that can be found. They think the Etruscans might have been related to them from various clues. But, um, you know, it's a very, very ancient group, and there really aren't that many of them. And so that's a very strange thing that they would find Basque DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and then this, this uh, rare form of, uh, you know, Asiatic uh, DNA as well. Right. So, well, it's just uh, that they're sele- selectively breeding because they're looking for certain traits that they want to preserve or enhance, perhaps. Well, I was trying to think who who was it, Mike, that uh, um, and uh, that that said that he was under the impression that who whomever the you know like the 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 ultimate you know leaders of 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 the you know these these unknown groups are that they are using earthly dna in order to create uh the beings that then you know we see coming out of uh, the these crafts in order to you know uh, uh, allow them to you know uh, work on our planet under these conditions but that they are actually you know like a uh, um a hybrid or right. or constructed type of beings right. but using you know, earthly biological, uh, biological material from here. Right, right. You know, well, the, the whole idea, and this is a very old idea, is that you know uh, they used to be called archons. You know, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's they, right. They, these these beings don't really exist in the same physical sense that we do, but in order to be here, they have to have biological. Uh, I guess you could call them diving suits. You know, something that they can wear, something that they can wear, even if it's for you know years at a time. So that they can interact with our environment and with us, something they mm-hmm. can inhabit. Mm-hmm. You know, there there have been uh, UFO encounters and, and and reports from experiencers who said that these beings refer to their bodies, even when they're during the abduction, they refer to their bodies as vehicles mm-hmm. or containers. So, yeah. you know, very very. See, and this is what I'm getting at earlier. When I say my individuality matters, I'm not somebody's container or vehicle, and my children aren't, and, you know, um, that, that's not for them to be intruding into, you know, our world to do these types of things, in my opinion. Hmm. I think it's uh, uh, another point, and we've got about uh, uh, five minutes uh, left in the program here, but I just wanted to... Uh, um, uh, ask you real quick, Kathleen, and uh, um, somebody had pointed out at one time that if these experiences uh, that, that were real, 
Uh, why, first of all, people would remember them? Why that they? Why would they suffer? You know, physical pain, uh, that sort of thing. And my contention has always been that um, you know nothing. None of this is an accident. That you know, if yeah. these if these things have been working with uh, humanity for all this time, they know very well what they're doing. Exactly, and, and they know yeah, what we're experiencing. They, they know the fear, the terror they're engendering. They know, you know, if they're telepathic, then they know, you know, if if they're inserting a needle painfully without a local anesthetic, they know what they're doing. But then, when the person complains, then they then they stop the pain. Right, but it's almost yeah, right. as if it, it, it's almost like a it, it's a form of conditioning. You know, a lot of UFO abductees seem to come to identify with their tormentors, and I, I refer to them as tormentors sometimes because they people live in torment and fear, and and so they eventually reach a point to where they say, "Oh, well, I'm special. I'm chosen." They told me I am. You know, they told me that I'm special and I'm chosen. So, you know, this, this must be true. And this is this is the uh, the Stockholm syndrome. Well, they tell experiencers over and over again that um, they are part of their family, that they are loved, that there is nothing to fear. And and then, the, you know, the question is, is this part of the Stockholm Syndrome? Are they lying? Are they manipulating humans to do uh, what they want to do? Or uh, are they telling the truth? And well, remember when they come. Really know that question. It's all a matter of opinion, right? Well, remember the, the the stories though of the of the hybrids, where where the 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 greys will tell the people, you know, we need to learn how to have these emotions. We need to learn how to have these connections. Our female here needs to learn how to nurture this child like you would and have these emotional connections. So that tells me there that they do know what's going on, but it's possible that they're so different from us that they lack the capacity to fully understand or even care about the harm that they may be doing to the psyches of the people that they interact with. I think that they are somewhat aware of this, yet I believe that they uh, are so different than humans that they can't fully comprehend uh, our emotions and what we're all about. They appear to be empathic. They appear to be able to feel human emotions that are uh, expressed. Right. Uh, but when they transfer an emotional feeling, it's almost as if it's projected upon the human. It's right. not uh, the kind of, of thing that where you're saying, I love you and I hug you and that sort of thing. It's yeah. an intense stare into the eyes of that human, and the human suddenly uh, experiences intense love. Well, you have to it. understand, too, that, that they could be um, somehow experiencing human emotion much in the way that we experience entertainment. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, it is. Why do they Why do they enjoy watching humans have sex? Yeah, you hear those reports over and over again. And they like they like to put people together and watch. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, unfortunately, guys, we are almost out of time here. So, Kathleen, I want to give you a chance to uh, uh, let our listeners know where can they find out more about you. Do you have a, a website? Uh, where can they find your books? Uh, that sort of thing. 
Yes, my website is Kathleen with a K dash Marden M A R D E N dot com. My books are available autographed copies using PayPal on my website. I also have many many articles and uh, also my upcoming uh, conferences and speaking engagements are listed on the website. And uh, also, all of the books are available on Amazon or can be ordered at bookstores if they're not in the bookstores and in several different formats. My latest book, The Alien Abduction Files, uh, is available in hardcover by a different name, softcover, as an audio book, uh, as an e-book, all of them available as e-books. And you said that uh, you're currently in the process of uh, writing another one? Yes, uh, Stanton Friedman and I are collaborating on another book, which, uh, you know, I think it's going to be great when when it's done. Very interesting, and, and, uh, boy, uh, it's incredible research that we're doing, archival research. Uh, Have any idea at this point when, when it may come out? No, we've been working on it for some time. It requires, you know, trips to archives. We're very, very busy uh, uh, speaking and and, uh, doing other activities. So, uh, you know, hopefully within the next year, but I can't guarantee that. All right. Well, uh, I hope that uh, you will uh, think of us and uh, come back uh, again in the future when you have this book finished or when you... uh, uh, you know, like maybe have some uh, um, updated information about your experience or a, a survey that you, you'd like to talk about because we, we certainly would love to have you back. Sure, I'd love to come back. I, you know, I really enjoyed these two hours and a couple of, you're a couple of great guys and great hosts. So thank <laughs> you very much for having me on. I look forward to being on again. We appreciate uh, it very much. It was, it was a great, great experience talking to you. Thank you. Very much. All right. Well, you have been listening to uh, Kathleen Martin here, uh, Martin here on the uh, the Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz uh, with Mike Mott. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, we hope you uh, join us again this time next week for another fascinating program. So, from all of us, good night and have a pleasant tomorrow.